You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Welcome to a multi-week, if not multi-month, study on the Gog-Magog War in the Bible. This will be part one, intro, and Revelation 20. Before we get started, I should go through my basic presuppositions, which will inform my methodology. For example, I am pre-millennial. I believe that there will be a literal 1,000-year period after the Battle of Armageddon. One presupposition is that I have what's called a face value or literal hermeneutic, which basically means that I assume the inerrancy of scripture in its original languages and basically take a pretty high view of scripture in general. These last three kind of go together. The first is a willingness to change my own view during this study. This is something I think I've proved over the years that I am willing to do. I can already tell in the initial study that I'm probably, for example, going to change my view on who Gog is from something that I've held before. And related to that, I will be upfront with my various presuppositions going into this study. And part of this initial intro will be to sort of explain my presuppositions going into this and sort of defend that to a certain degree anyway. And finally, a willingness to honestly and clearly explain why others believe the way that they do about various issues related to Gog Magog. This is so that even if you disagree with me, you should still be able to benefit from this study, and I would bet you're probably going to hear things here you have never heard from somebody that holds a different view. So very simply, what is the Gog-Magog War? It's a quote-unquote war described especially in Ezekiel 38 and 39, but I would argue in Revelation 20 and some other places as well, in which specific nations slash people attempt to attack Jerusalem, but instead are defeated by God with fire. One important point is that while there is a lot of debate on the timing of this issue, as we'll see later, it is understood to be a future event by most futurists. For example, many premillennial Christians understand this war to be in the future, as well as many Jews and Muslims. So this is one of the rare things that Christians, Jews, and Muslims tend to agree on, that the Gog-Magog War is a future event. The main disagreements people have about the Gog-Magog War really boil down to these three questions. Who is Gog? Which nations are being described? And when does this war happen in relationship to the end times timeline? All right, so this chart was partly put together by Doug Woodward at his website, faithhappens.com. And what I like it for is that it shows the utter confusion among the most popular prophecy teachers out there about when the Gog-Magog war happens. And I like to show this because I think there's a, a feeling among most prophecy students that there really is complete consensus, that everybody knows it happens whenever they think it happens. But seeing these different, what is it, one, two, three, four, five, six different timing possibilities of the Gog-Magog War and seeing the names behind each one of them should show you immediately that there is absolutely no understanding or consensus at least about when this happened. So for you podcast listeners, those that think that it will happen before the seven-year period begins are names like Arnold Fruchtenbaum, John Hagee, Tim LaHaye, Chuck Missler, Chuck Smith, to, na to name a few. Those that think it will take place sort of just after the beginning, beginning point are J.R. Church, Peter Goodgame, Zola Levitt, just before the midpoint, Mark Hitchcock, Renald Showers, John Walvoord, Warren Wearsby, 
at or after the midpoint, Hal Lindsey, J. Vernon McGee, Dwight Pentecost, Jack Van Impey, David Weber. At the end of the seven years, E.W. Bullinger, David Dolan, Robert Van Campen, Harry Rimmer, Clarence Larkin. Finally, we have the view that the Gog Magog War takes place at the end of the thousand-year period, at the end of the millennium. People that hold this view are people like J. Paul Tanner and Ralph Alexander and myself. This is the view that I will be defending. I actually added this one to this chart. Doug Woodward did not add this uh, to his original chart, which is kind of a shame because this is the only view that has ever been defended in peer-reviewed journals. So these two names that you may not have heard of before, J. Paul Tanner and Ralph H. Alexander, are pretty significant because as far as I can tell, there have only ever been two peer-reviewed papers ever written specifically on the timing of the Gog-Magog War, both of which came to the same conclusion that it takes place at the end of the thousand-year period. The reason I give a little bit more weight to theological papers, especially peer-reviewed journals, is because their argumentation has to be a little bit better. They have to argue against other theories, things that people that just write a book about their view don't have to do. So it's a little more rigorous. I think that if you read these two papers, you would see what I mean. But for now, let's just jump right into the study, and we're going to start with Revelation 20. So why should we start with Revelation 20 instead of Ezekiel 38 and 39? Well, the Gog-Magog section in Revelation 20 is only three verses long, so we can read it quickly and then carry it with us during our study of Ezekiel 38 and 39 to see if there is any reason to compare the two passages, which I think is better than starting off with Ezekiel 38 and 39, forming your conclusions, and then being kind of caught off guard when you have to deal with Revelation 20, which is the case with a lot of these studies, as I'll show you in a second. Number two, Revelation 20 is the only place in the Bible that gives us explicit timing information on something referred to by John in Revelation as Gog Magog. So it makes it a good starting point from a Bible study perspective. You usually try to start off with the more clear passages and sort of work your way back from there. So let's read Revelation 20, and keep in mind this comes right after Revelation 19, which is, of course, the Battle of Armageddon. So we have Jesus and the white horse descending from the clouds, defeating what kind of looks like a Gog-Magog war uh, event in itself, and we're going to talk extensively about what to do with Revelation 19, since it has so many similarities to Gog-Magog. But for our purposes right now, Revelation 19 comes first and is widely considered to be a different event than the one we're about to talk about because of the clear timing information that we're about to, to read. So Armageddon happens, then we read this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that is Satan, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So this happens just as the millennium is beginning, right? The, the Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. And then there is sort of an interlude after this, and then we pick up again in verse 7, which says this, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But 
fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Since there's a lot going on with the timeline here, we probably should refresh what the common and generally accepted views on this timeline are. So even though, as we saw, a lot of premillennial Christians disagree about when the events in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will take place, all those guys pretty much will agree on the following information. Number one, the Antichrist and false prophet are defeated and thrown into the lake of fire at Armageddon. It's the same basic time that Satan is imprisoned in the abyss, that is at the end of the 70th week at Armageddon. In other words, kind of setting up for the millennium, the false prophet and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire and Satan is imprisoned for a thousand years. After that, the thousand years of peace on earth will begin with Jesus literally ruling the survivors of the day of the Lord and presumably their descendants on earth. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from the abyss and he deceives many humans, presumed to be the descendants of the survivors of the day of the Lord, to march on this millennial Jerusalem where Jesus is and where people have been living securely for a thousand years. It's a final rebellion against God. In other words, everybody pretty much agrees there will be some kind of event at the end of the thousand year period. They also pretty much agree that for some reason, John in Revelation calls this final rebellion of Satan in which these armies are consumed by fire, Gog, Magog. He specifically says the words Gog, Magog. There are some basic similarities between Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation 27 through 10. Number one, the chief antagonist in both passages leads many nations to war, and he does so from all directions. In Revelation 20, it says they come from the four corners of the earth, which is typically to refer to the four compass directions. And we see the actual nations being from the four compass directions in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There is a number of nations from the north, including Meshach, etc., but also from the south, Cush, from the east, Persia, and from the west, Put and the Isles. And we're going to look more in depth at the location of those places in this study. I know a lot of people think that Russia is involved there, and we're certainly going to look at that in some detail. Another similarity is the staggering number of troops is emphasized in both passages. Revelation 28, Ezekiel 38, 4, 6, 9, and 15 through 16. Number three, the target of the invasion is the land of Israel in both passages, that is the secure dwelling of God's covenant people. And number four, the Lord defeats the chief antagonist and his army by means of fire from heaven in both passages. Really quickly, here are some other reasons to really consider the idea of the post-1000 year Gog Magog war. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is a lot of language suggesting that, for example, it will all be over forever. God's name will never be profaned again after the Gog Magog War. And that kind of sentiment just doesn't work in any kind of pre-end of the day of the Lord. So for example, if God's name is never profaned again after the end of the Gog Magog War, and you think it happens before the 70th week of Daniel, so before the end of Christ sits in the temple, will certainly be uh, profaning God's name. And certainly you could take that a step further. I mean, even if you believe that there will be a war of some kind at the end of the millennium in which Satan deceives the nations to literally go to war against God, that is an event of God's name being profaned. So I think, as we'll see here, 
there is a sense where a lot of these things really can't be true until after the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand year period. A lot of the things that we're going to read in Ezekiel 38 and 39 just simply can't work in any other context. The next one is like that. It's another theme in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The nations will all know the Lord after the Gog Magog War. Ezekiel 38, 16, Ezekiel 38, 23, Ezekiel 39, 7. And this, I don't think, can be true of any time at least until after Armageddon. So I don't think that this makes sense for any other view except at least Armageddon. And I would argue it's more true after the millennium because even though the nations recognize the Lord's sovereignty during the millennium, it's clearly not a perfect recognition. For example, Isaiah speaks of you know, no rain coming to certain nations unless they go up year by year to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. So there's sort of a rule by rod of iron concept during the millennium that really is only in its completeness after that, but it's a little bit splitting hairs. But at least I would say the nations will not know the Lord after the covenant is made or the midpoint. There's still a lot of rebellion to happen before we get there. Also, Israel recognizes the Lord's sovereignty in totality. And this, again, is kind of like the Armageddon argument. You can't argue that Israel truly, in totality, both the northern and southern kingdoms, which it makes it clear in Ezekiel, recognize the Lord after Gog Magog, if Gog Magog is any time at least until Armageddon. But I, again, I would argue it's more true at the end of the millennium. I think this next one is a big one. There is a lot of vocabulary, and I think the context is best understood if Ezekiel 38 and 39 are speaking of people that have literally no fears. They have been dwelling peacefully for a thousand years. So a lot of emphasis on in phrases like dwelling securely, dwelling in a land that has undergone a restoration from the sword, a land of unwalled villages, peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. All these phrases, as well as other phrases that Ezekiel uses that he uses in other places to refer to the millennium in the latter times, etc. And I know we tend to just think of that as, oh, well, that's just the end times. But Ezekiel has very specific millennial understanding, as we'll see as we progress as well. But all of that is inconsistent with Israel's current geopolitical situation. I would also argue that it certainly would preclude any timing of the Gog-Magog War before the 70th week of Daniel. If you hold that view, these kinds of things make that impossible. I would also argue that this is an argument against the Armageddon uh, true fulfillment of the Gog-Magog War because there's no sense in that Israel is dwelling securely without walls just before Armageddon. So there is maybe a short window after the covenant and before the midpoint where somebody might want to make this argument that this is the false peace. But as we'll see when we get really into the context here, that even that has its major issues. So I think this is interesting. What do other premillennial Christians that have a high view of scripture say about the Gog-Magog war in Revelation 20? So when they come to that passage, what are they doing with it? And I think David Guzik is a good example of what a lot of people do with it. I've listened to a lot of sermons. I've read a lot of commentaries from sort of premillennial pop teachers. And this is basically what most of them do with it. He says about Revelation 20, John seems to borrow the term Gog-Magog and use it as a symbol. Seemingly, the battles described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 take place before the return of Jesus, perhaps right before or during the tribulation. 
This final battle clearly takes place at the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So to translate this, and I don't think I'm being hard on David Guzik here, this is all he says on the timing of Revelation 20. And he basically says, look, since I believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place at a different time, and this battle clearly takes place at another time, it can't be the same thing, because I really believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place at another time. And I should say, in his defense, sometimes an argument like this can be a great argument. If you say, this can't be what it looks like, like I know Revelation 20 looks like the Gog-Magog War takes place after the millennium, but we know it can't be because I have such strong evidence that Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place, you know, before the 70th week or during the 70th week or whatever. If you have such good evidence of the timing of Ezekiel and 38 and 39 not at this time, then yeah, that could be a valid argument. So let's look at what David Guzik says about the timing of Ezekiel 38 and 39 in his commentary on Ezekiel. So in his commentary on Ezekiel, and I looked all over his commentaries for anything about timing or any argumentation regarding that, and what he did is he basically just listed all the possibilities of the timing of the Gog-Magog War, including the Revelation 20 hypothesis. So he lists them all, and then he says this, each one of these scenarios has its own objections and problems. And this may be a case where the specific fulfillment of the prophecy is not truly understood until its fulfillment. In other words, his position on the timing of the Gog-Magog War in the book of Ezekiel is that, number one, he doesn't know, and he doesn't think it may be even possible to know. He certainly gives no argumentation one way or the other for any of these views, and that's fine. I kind of respect that view on Ezekiel, but my point is, the same person who believes that about the timing of the Gog-Magog War should not be the same person making the argument that since he knows so well when Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place, that this battle in Revelation 20 can't be the same thing. That's just not how this works. As far as I see it, there are really only two options for Revelation 20, and although there are a lot of sort of sub-theories within this, they really still only boil down to two options. Number one, there is only one true Gog-Magog war at the end of the millennium, and Revelation 20, 7 through 10, is a short summary of Ezekiel 38 and 39, though views on Revelation 19 differ even among those that believe this version of events. Or the second option, that there are two distinct events, and the one in Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place around the seven-year period. It's the true Gog-Magog War, but there is a separate distinct war at the end of the millennium that John, for some reason or another, calls Gog-Magog. Maybe it is just a symbolic term. So it's a real distinct war, but just not the same one that Ezekiel was referring to. Just so I can be crystal clear about my presuppositions going into this, and remember, I'm willing to change all this as new information comes to light, which I'm excited about uh, discovering as we go through this. But number one, I think the Gog-Magog War has its ultimate fulfillment after the thousand-year period, a la Revelation 20. But there is a typological prefiguration, think near-far fulfillment, of the Gog-Magog War at Armageddon, that is Revelation 19. So Revelation 19 is kind of like a near fulfillment, but its true fulfillment is only after the thousand year period. In other words, I do not think that the Gog-Magog war described in Ezekiel or Revelation will take place at least until the end of the 70th week of Daniel. I can't see any situation where it takes place at least before Armageddon. 
Another presupposition I hold that I think is important is that I think the Antichrist might attempt to make the world, and especially Jews, believe that he is fulfilling the Gog Magog War. In other words, I think there's a scenario in which the world will believe that the Gog Magog War is happening. And I think that is advantageous for the Antichrist to make the world believe, because especially if the war in Daniel 11 that we know the Antichrist is fighting against basically the enemies of Israel, Assyria, Egypt, Put, Cush, Jordan, and the Western coastlands, which the Bible says the Antichrist will completely defeat them all and be completely victorious. If he convinces the world that his battles in Daniel 11 are the Gog-Magog war, then he really gets to present himself as the victor of Gog-Magog, which of course we know is supposed to be God. And even though you may not think much of that idea of a potential false Gog-Magog war perpetrated by the Antichrist, I think it's advantageous for you that I believe it because the net result is that it makes me more serious about this study. Because I think this could possibly be used, the wrong timing of the Gog-Magog war might be used as a part of a satanic deception, I'm more motivated to get it right. And because I have written about this and because I have videos on it from years ago, you might think all that kind of stuff holds me back from changing my position. And I have to be honest, all that stuff does, which is why teachers have such a hard time changing their positions if they have written about it previously. But uh, my track record shows I'm willing to change that at the drop of a hat if I can have a better argument. Really quickly, I wanted to mention a video that you can watch. It's about a 35-minute video. It's called The Timing of the Gog-Magog War. You can find it on YouTube on the Bible Prophecy Talk channel. And it's a good thing to point you to right now if you want more information about the arguments for and the arguments against this theory that the Gog Magog War takes place at the end of the millennium. In that video, I go through a lot of arguments against this view, but I wanted to hit about three of them real quick before we conclude, just because these are the kind of things that I assume is probably swirling around somebody's head out there. And I honestly think this first one might be the only reason that people have placed the Gog Magog War in Ezekiel 38 and 39 before the millennium. And that is because the section about the Gog Magog War in Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, appear just before Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. Well, that's obvious, right? Well, what I mean by that is that after you finish reading in Ezekiel about the Gog Magog War, you turn the last page in Ezekiel chapter 39 and you come to Ezekiel chapter 40. Now, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is all part of one big section. And that section is all about the millennium. So people will argue, well, since Ezekiel 40 through 48 is all about the millennium, then Ezekiel 38 and 39, which comes before that, must chronologically take place before the millennium. And there is one sense in Bible study and hermeneutics where you can make this connection. That is to say, one chapter necessarily takes place before the events of the next chapter. And that's when there's some kind of contextual or chronological language that links one chapter from the other. It's usually very obvious. But this is definitely not one of those cases. For example, the section that we find the Gog-Magog War is part of a vision that began one chapter earlier in Ezekiel 37, where it starts off, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, etc. So that's how the section that contains Gog-Magog starts. In Ezekiel 40, after the Gog-Magog section, it says this, 
and the 25th year of our exile at the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month and the 14th year of this, uh, after the city was struck down on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out to the city in visions of... So it's a totally separate vision. In fact, some historians believe that the last eight chapters in Ezekiel about the millennium were actually circulated at a different time, almost like a sequel to Ezekiel. But whether or not that's true or not, it's obviously a different vision that was recorded at a different time about different events. So arguing that the Gog-Magog war occurs before the millennium because of the placement of this chapter would be like saying that since Isaiah chapter 2 is about the millennium, the rest of the 63 chapters in the book of Isaiah are after the millennium. It's just not an argument that anybody would make. Some people will say that Israel would have no reason to burn the invaders' weapons or bury bodies in the eternal kingdom. In other words, they say, well, if you're saying this happens after the millennium and then after that is the great white throne judgment and the eternal kingdom with the new Jerusalem on earth, why would Israel be burning weapons and for fuel or, or having any need to bury bodies? And I would say there are a lot of assumptions being made there. Number one, the big assumption that you know what the eternal kingdom will be like. I mean, it obviously will be on earth. I mean, we don't yet know exactly what will or won't be needed in terms of burning weapons or anything like that. But also we don't know exactly how much time expires between the end of this war in Revelation 20 and the beginning of the eternal kingdom. Those are just not details that we have uh, uh, available to us. So it's a lot of assumptions on that particular argument. And then finally, people will say it's the same war as Revelation 19. And here I am sympathetic to a lot of them because I do see Revelation 19 as a kind of fulfillment of the Gog-Magog War in the same way that I see, for example, John the Baptist as a kind of fulfillment of the Elijah prophecies. But the true fulfillment, for example, of Elijah will be in the last days. He really will uh, be here, probably as part of the two witnesses. But nevertheless, there is a sense in which John the Baptist was Elijah. And I think the same kind of thing is happening with Revelation 19. The imagery, for example, of the bird feast in Revelation 19 is clearly linked to the imagery um, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I think there are some other good arguments for really zeroing in and saying Armageddon is an important factor here. But I feel like a lot of people are taking the Revelation 19 thing too far, and it's certainly to the detriment of dealing with Revelation 20 in any kind of honest way. So, for example, Mike Heiser, who I, of course, truly respect, he seems through most of his presentation to kind of be landing on the Revelation 20 Gog Magog War, but really he's, he's, he's saying mostly it's Revelation 19 and Armageddon. He seems to think that Revelation 20 is a separate and distinct war, but then really when the rubber meets the road, he's basically even saying, well, maybe the thousand years isn't even a thousand years and he really doesn't know. And I really don't even know where he's going with that, but he does sort of primarily put it at Armageddon. And then you have somebody like Joe Richardson, who again, uh, believes that the Armageddon Revelation 19 is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So it's at Armageddon. But Joel seems to also think that there is a war in Revelation 20 at the end of the thousand-year period, which he's just not very verbose on, doesn't talk a lot about, which, again, I think needs to be, you need to be verbose on that, you, because especially if a lot of your arguments for why a Revelation 20 war can't exist, you know, people say things like, well, if you're going to have a war at the, right before the eternal kingdom, I mean, what are you going to do? People having to bury weapons and all that stuff, and yet... They do, when the rubber meets the road, admit that there is a war there. So, I mean, what do you do with that? Your arguments against 
the Gog-Magog war being at the end of the millennium are still needing to be dealt with if you also agree that it's a real distinct war at the end of the millennium, even if you don't call it Gog-Magog. So I just, I just think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance with even the people that have mostly rightish views about this. Again, I think the only defensible position is that the Gog-Magog war is a near-far fulfillment, completely fulfilled at the end of the millennium, but prefigured at Revelation 19. But again, that's what we're here to truly discover. And I don't want to make this study about my views and trying to sell my views. I know I've done that in this intro because I think it's important that I get all that out of the way so that when we go through a more traditional verse by verse of Ezekiel 38 and 39, we can have this as a background to either prove or disprove. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 